The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Miles to Memories podcast. I'm Sean Coomer, your host, joined today by an old friend of the site, an old friend of mine. Not, uh, well, he is old, but also he's been a friend of mine for a long time. A PDX Deals guy. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Good to be here. Sorry, I, it only took me, what, 10 seconds in to make a joke about you call being me old. old. I, I know. I'm sorry about that. Uh, you know, <laughs> old habits, right. die habits. hard. Yeah, so uh, we have a lot to talk about you engage a lot in uh, reselling and buyers clubs and merchandise reselling, ticket reselling, gift cards. We're going to talk all about how people can juice up their spend using the miles and points hobby. Some of the things that we've done together, some of the tips that we have accumulated along the way. And while uh, doing a lot of this stuff is very businesslike and we'll definitely warn people about that along the way, finding your own little spaces within this stuff can be a great way to drive even more points and miles earnings hit sign up bonuses, all of that stuff. So I'm looking forward to talking about it. Before we get into the show, just want to remind everybody out there that you can find uh, links for this podcast to subscribe in any podcast app or links to apply for cards, support the show, everything at mtmpodcast.com. And we've been loving the five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts lately. If you do listen on Apple and love the show, considering giving us a five-star review, it helps us reach more people. And that is the goal here. PDX is uh, reaching more people, teaching them about things, helping them turn this hobby that we both love into, you know, the memories uh, that last a lifetime. That's so cliche, but I guess that's the name of the site in the podcast. So I guess that we're works. allowed to be cliche. Yeah. Yeah. So works. how about you? Uh, we start by you kind of telling people about your history in the miles and points hobby. And I guess maybe a little bit about how we met. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's been what, about 10 years or so now. Time, time flies as always. That's crazy. Ten, yeah, almost ten years. Yeah, I've always been, uh, you know, by profession and by by hobby, always been a very analytical person that loves getting good deals. So you know, I kind of just stumbled into this space ten or so years ago, probably first looking at credit card stuff, and then you know, figuring out how to, uh, you know, get more spend, get more, to get more miles and points, and uh, so it's kind of been a journey along the way, uh, getting to know you and, and working together on some of this stuff. So look forward to talking about that. And then, you know, over time, that's just, as it hopefully does for everyone that does this leads to, you know, a more love of travel, more opportunities for travel. Uh, of course, I know you guys have been talking on the podcast in the last couple of weeks about, you know, travel shaming and so forth. And everyone has their, you know, ideal ways to travel for, uh, my wife together, we've probably skewed more towards the you know luxury side of things, doing stuff that we might have never done before. Uh, so that's what you know works for us. Uh, but you know, been able to see the world in ways that we had never previously over the last you know five ten years. And so it all goes back to building these tools to build up the miles and points. Yeah, and it seems like there's two kind of groups of people in this hobby. There's people who focus a lot on 
the redemption side. And I think that that's probably an area that most people could work on a lot. And I appreciate that we have tools now that help like point.me and these other tools that make it so much easier uh, because even those of us who have focused more on the earning side, which I think is probably where you and I have spent most of our time focusing over this last decade on figuring out ways to earn stuff and, and starting businesses, which we'll talk about uh, through here. But you know, I feel like uh, that's sort of the two camps and there's nothing wrong with learning how to redeem things. And in fact, getting great redemptions, as we know, can be a secret sauce to not needing as many miles and points. You know, a lot of people wasting miles and points by redeeming for bad redemptions or not knowing exactly the flexibility of their points, things like that. But on the flip side, if you can really learn how to juice up your earnings through some of the methods we'll talk about today, that not only opens up the opportunities to earn a lot of points, a lot of sign-up bonuses, but also to uh, earn some money too along the way, which is a nice side effect. It can be money for travel or just money for life. Yeah, absolutely. Probably a lot of us uh, that you know read Miles to Memories build up a toolkit for earning points, and that tends to be where the strength is. But yeah, I, I agree with you completely. You know, saving money via retentions is great, but you know we all have limited amount of time. And for me, and I'm sure I'm not unique in this, I think that my strengths more are on the uh, earning side. And so when it comes to redemption, you know, between miles earning as well as profit earning, and you know the reselling sort of stuff, uh, I think. I get in the position where I have probably more, especially coming out of the pandemic, more you know, miles and points than uh, I need at this point. And so on the redemption side, if I'm overspending, you know, however you want to define that a little bit, uh, that's okay. Being a redemption expert, I think is more rare. I you know, love people like, you know, Ian on our you know, site that are you know, good at that sort of stuff and learning from them is great. Uh, but I think what we'll be talking about mostly today is, is more on the earning side. But even though you have an abundance of miles and points, we still haven't gotten you to cash in any American Express membership rewards points. You haven't joined the dark side there. So you like no, to keep I, that stuff for travel, huh? Yeah, I haven't cashed out yet. I just, you know, the, you know, the thought of cashing out at a petty or, or you know, 1.1, you know, whatever it is, you know, compared to the value that I know I get for it, even though, you know, it might not be a lot more. I'm happy to, you know, cash out at 1.5, you know, sort of value or whatever until I get to the point where I'm convinced that I just have more, way more miles or points that I can use, you know, over coming years. It hurts me to lose that value. And, you know, like many, I do, you know, view miles and points kind of as my travel piggy bank. And again, then when I go to redeem, I'm a little bit less worried about sometimes not getting the absolute best redemption. Uh, it just allows me to do, you know, stuff and feel good about, you know, feel like I'm getting a deal, uh, which I know a lot of us are driven by. Uh, so yeah, a lot, a lot of miles and points coming out of the pandemic, but hopefully over the next couple of years, we'll start to burn those down. And I took the opposite approach. It took me years to come around to this, but finally got the Schwab Platinum card and recently uh, cashed in a million membership rewards points for $11,000. I still have about 2 million left. So, you know, I'm kind of not fully on, on board with that. Like some people like uh, Benji, who's a contributor to the site who burns all of his membership rewards, cashes them all in. And so I'm still holding back some, but I'll probably cash in some more and keep it around a million plus. I mean, and that's a great problem to have, and that's because of what we're going to talk about today. One last thing before we kind of get into the specifics of tickets, gift cards, buyers groups, and Amazon, and some of the other stuff that we do, one of the criticisms of this hobby in general is that it's a huge time suck, right? Is that people chase deals that necessarily aren't worth it, that they could invest that time in something else and get better returns. And 
everything we're talking about today does involve some level of organization and time. How do you avoid, you know, the time suck? How do you choose which activities you're going to get into when you're deciding, you know, you see a new opportunity for spend, you see another thing that sort of interests you. How do you balance that time? Yeah, it's just an ongoing process of learning. And, you know, as you mentioned, there's you know, various different areas in which we have uh, dabbled or maybe even become, you might say, experts in some areas after doing this for a number of years. But you kind of just figure it out as you go over time. I think it's really easy for people to look on the surface and say, you know, I bought for X and I sold for Y and it took me this much time and that was my profit or this is my profit per hour. But, you know, for us, we've come to realize, and I'm sure we'll talk more about the fact that you know there's more than just the buying on the front end there's the processing there's the accounting uh, and when you factor in all of that time you just need to you know set a, a goal for yourself you and I have talked a, a lot about you know having a you know kind of a certain dollar per hour maybe threshold but you got to factor in you know all the you know all, again all the other time more than just the initial purchase yeah back in the day i used to talk about uh, my hour my time per hour at about $100 an hour for going into do gift cards and, and that sort of stuff in the past. And I usually was able to hit that. There were other deals that I was able to scale more and where I had more time where I went a little bit less, but that was sort of a gauge. But then as you know, the reselling business sort of grew, you know, the lines got blurred. It got impossible to sort of track all of that. Uh, I did determine that I'm making enough money, but uh, the, the amount of time became more and more and uh, we'll see. But I, I want to, you know, emphasize for people listening is that, we're going to talk about things that we've done a lot, things that we've dabbled. I think the important thing is to kind of find what works for you and what level works for you. And it's okay. Just like we talked about with point shaming, nobody should shame you for not doing enough or for not being a hard enough hitter or anything like that. It's one of the reasons I love like the diamond community is because we have a great range of people from people who do, do tons of spending, really advanced stuff to new people and nobody's judging each other. And, you know, we're all just in this hobby because we love to travel. We love the miles and points rewards game, and that's great. And uh, so let's set the tone with that. None of us, we're not going to shame you in this episode. I don't want you to leave this episode thinking, oh my God, I'm terrible because I'm not doing all these things. I just want to open your mind up to th some things that people are doing and then maybe help people get some ideas for how they can earn more as they uh, get deeper into the hobby. The one big distinction, you know, maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but uh, in terms of increasing spending, unlike other ways that people in our community sometimes think about generating more miles and points, uh, I think some of the stuff we're going to be talking about today in terms of reselling is great because you have the opportunity. There's not, it's not without risk, of course, but there's the opportunity to have profit involved in the process. So you're not only generating a lot of miles and points, but uh, have the potential to have uh, some profit as well, which again goes to that, uh, you know, concept of making things worth your time, whether it's on a you know, dollar per hour basis or however you view that. Absolutely. So let's uh, get into talking about some of this stuff. Let's start with ticket reselling. Now, this is something I've covered on the site occasionally over the years. I've never been a hardcore ticket reseller. I do know people who have full-time businesses doing this very large-scale businesses, making a lot of money reselling tickets. And it's a very complicated game because there's so many events and cities and venues and getting the right ticket types and everything else. I think for people who are sort of casual about it, there can be some opportunities. And we saw that a few years ago with like Hamilton tickets. I know a lot of people in the miles and points game did well selling those. And that was because American Express would release some to platinum card holders. So you could get them from American Express and then turn around and sell them. There were various opportunities. I even wrote about 
my experience reselling a ticket package here in Las Vegas where I bought season tickets for Hamilton, these really bad balcony seats. Just the tickets that I sold in my balcony seat paid for the entire season ticket package, plus ticket prices tanked and I was able to go with much better seats for cheaper. So it's some interesting stuff that can happen over the years. There's also season tickets and a lot of other kind of more advanced ways to get into it. Ticket reselling is something where I've had great gains, but also my biggest losses, like single losses in buying events. And COVID really threw a wrench into that. I feel like I was in more of a kind of a, a, a I feel like I was in more of a groove before COVID when it came to ticket reselling and, and kind of keeping up with it. And I did well during some post-COVID events. And then other ones, I just ate it really badly. And then about a year ago, I just stopped buying tickets and have focused on other stuff. So I haven't really done any ticket reselling in a year, but you continue to do it. Is this really a good way for people to generate miles and points given the the huge amount of risk here? And I don't want to downplay that. I mean, overall, I've made money selling tickets because of my wins out, you know, pace my losses. But there have been some losses that have been hard to take. And this feels like the most volatile of the reselling options. Yeah, you hit on you know quite a few things there. Let's see if I can you know follow up on on a number of them. The first thing I'll highlight is whenever we talk about ticket reselling, I wrote a post for Miles to Memory years ago. Maybe we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, but you know the the first thing that you know I always talk about when when I'm talking with people about this is some people have just a very strong feeling about this issue of reselling tickets. You know, are you, you don't want to be a horrible scalper or, you know, scalpers are driving up the prices and all that. And, you know, those are fair feelings for people to have and so forth. So I don't think we'll go down that rabbit hole, but, you know, it is an issue that everyone has to decide for themselves whether or not they, they want to be a part of. And, you know, I think we have reasons why we feel like it's um, okay to do this. And I think, you know, the, the one way where it really jumps out kind of as low hanging fruit for people would be an example you gave of season tickets whether it's season tickets for a show series or for your local sports team. Uh, If it's something that you're partaking in and you are enjoying yourself and therefore you probably know and understand the market, uh, you know, that can be a a great way to get involved because, you know, most of those season ticket sort of experiences have reselling built into the kind of the feature. They even maybe highlight them that, you know, if you can't use all your tickets, you can resell and so forth. And of course, it's very different whether you're using part of them or you're buying them completely 100% with just the thought that you're going to sell them for a profit. But, you know, those are the opportunities. But circling back to some of the other stuff you mentioned, COVID, yeah, the whole pandemic definitely changed things here. And it wasn't just we went through a, you know, whatever year and a half time period where people didn't want to go to live events. And you could argue that we're still, you know, slowly coming out of that, or maybe even that it's been permanently altered to some degree, um, all, you know, fair and, and relevant observations. But, you know, there's been other things too that have changed. I mean, things from, just to give an example, StubHub, in my humble opinion, was a great website and, you know, this gone through some ownership changes and it's just not what it was previously to the fact that, you know, the ticket sellers themselves, and there's all sorts of controversy out in the market around Live Nation and Ticketmaster and, you know, their fees. And uh, you guys talked about the junk fees, uh, I think on the last episode or two, and, you know, Ticketmaster is falling in under that as well. But they've also done a lot more variable pricing sort of stuff where uh, one of the great opportunities in ticket reselling, uh, you know, going back and still there uh, is, you know, finding kind of the sweet spot of tickets, finding the cheapest tickets in a good section. Um, And those are oftentimes the best reselling opportunities. Uh, That's become a little bit more difficult. Uh, You know, the ticket masters of the world have figured out how to variable price uh, in such a way that, you know, finding the sweet spots is becoming more difficult. 
yeah, it's becoming more complicated. And they're also fighting back against resellers with various advanced tools and anti-bot stuff. And the only reason I mention that is not because anybody who's listening to this will be using bots. It just makes it harder for the average person because there are advanced players out there who are using all kinds of tech to be able to get the best tickets and to be able to get that stuff. So it can be more challenging just when you're picking out shows. Now, there is low-hanging fruit in the ticket space, although you can't always identify it, right? You know, the Hamilton example comes to mind. That was fairly easy. Anybody who would buy those tickets was making a profit on them. Low-hanging fruit. Uh, Other things like Taylor Swift, right, with her concert, that turned into be very high demand and not enough tickets, low-hanging fruit. But sometimes you think something's going to be like that, and it totally doesn't turn out that way, where there's just an abundance of tickets and or something that you taught me pretty early on is they (laughs) added another show, right? They can add additional shows, additional supply, and that can really mess you up. And with all the, and with ticket prices being higher than ever now, the risk is as high as it's ever been on these tickets. How do you avoid those big losses as best that you can? Yeah, I think the first thing to realize that you know you've made mention of a couple times is that there will be losses. There is no way to avoid it. So I think that the the most important thing, especially in ticket reselling, given the volatility that you've mentioned, is understanding the accounting on an you know overall basis. Uh, uh, you know, not looking at each individual one because you will have losses. You also have you know big winners if you're doing it right, uh, and you know so you have to be able to you know stomach the the big losses. I think you know the the big thing that all of us who do this realize is there's a big difference between selling something for you know a horrible loss, fifty percent versus a hundred percent loss, which is the case of not selling a ticket at all. And you know those are the ones where you have to really try and avoid, and to some degree. You know, that's something that you feel out over time and learn that, you know what, I'm just going to be better off taking, you know, a 50% loss on this than potentially getting down to the wire and, and taking a 100% loss. Absolutely. Yeah, it's you got to be able to let things go. And, you know, having sold season tickets in the past, of course, that's something you have to do all the time. Where there's low demand games, you have to sell for whatever you can get. Just understanding that on those good games, you're going to make up for it. And, you know, hopefully you average out to a profit uh, at the end of the season. Something that I didn't really do on my last season that I had season tickets. Uh, I, I actually lost for the season. But then again, I had done that for five or six seasons, done really well. And, you know, COVID kind of messed me up with it. But if I look at the overall, I still did pretty well on it. So you have to have bigger eyes, I think, when it comes to that stuff. I feel like we've talked enough about ticket reselling and given the caution of it. But do you have a favorite reselling win when it comes to tickets that you're uh, willing to share? It's funny that, you know, just thinking about uh, preparing for the show, I, I went back and looked through my accounting and, uh, you know, at the single biggest win were Ham- was Hamilton tickets uh, once upon a time. But, you know, beyond that, the two that jump out are just one-off concert or concert tours, meaning that, you know, maybe you're buying in multiple different cities uh, and, uh, you know, so it might be big names. Uh, Justin Timberlake was one that, you know, jumped out at me from, you know, years ago. And, or it might be smaller names. I could name bands that, you know, probably nobody's heard of that I personally, you know, follow uh, and know. And they're playing in small venues. And, you know, you can make make a good profit on those. 
But the other thing that jumped out to me as I went back and looked at the counting over the years of doing this is that, you know, the profit has been pretty consistently good on an annual basis. Again, uh, you know, there's every year those, those there's big losses, but there is the potential for this to be a nice profitable business. And it's been was surprisingly consistent over time, you know, going back over the years with the big exception being uh, the pandemic. There was, again, that, you know, year, year and a half time period is really 2021, but even into early 2022, it, you know, continued. And, you know, that took a big bite out of the, the business. But uh, aside from us having another pandemic, this can, can be a nice business. You know, it is either A, a business, or B, you just have to look at it as a way to potentially increase spend. Again, the thought, you know, with season tickets, am I going to buy a six pack of tickets? And that can be a great way for, you know, someone, you know, maybe you want to go to three games and you sell the other three. Or if, you know, you want to go to 10 games of, you know, whatever we're talking about, baseball, basketball, you buy season tickets and, you know, sell whatever the proportion is, three quarters, half of them. But again, it's it's not as if it's just simple and you just buy season tickets and you sell. It's not that simple. You need to understand, you know, where the sweet spots are, and it also depends on whether you're looking at it on a percentage basis or a dollar basis. Sometimes you can find some really low price tickets uh, that have great percentage returns, but the dollar amount isn't enough to be significant for you in the time that you're spending on it. So there's you know, many different ways to look at it, um, uh, but uh, it can be a great business as long as you understand the volatility. And one last thing I want to add before we move on to gift card reselling is you don't always have to, and I think you, you alluded to this, you don't always have to look for the big names you know, one one thing that comes to mind as far as a big win was discovering a few years ago, there was this podcast that was sort of blowing up and they started doing live shows and the show was much more popular than the size of the venues that they were doing these live shows. They've since fixed that and now it's really not an opportunity very much anymore. But in those early days, this is just something that we heard on a podcast and we did really well selling the, the live tickets for the live recordings of their shows so it just proves that you don't have to be looking at only the big names and the big stuff, that there is opportunity, especially, like you said, looking where you know, within your own wheelhouse. That's a great place to start. So let's talk about gift card reselling. And there are a lot of deals you know, posted, Doctor of Credit, of course, on Miles to Memories and other sites that we focus on merchant gift cards. Um, there are also Visa and MasterCard gift card deals, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about merchant gift cards that you can often get for sale for 10, 20, 30% off during deals, especially I find like before the holidays, you see a lot of these, you definitely see a lot of them on Mother's Day and Father's Day, uh, or they say dads and grads, but there are deals all throughout the year. So there can be really heavy concentration of deals around holidays and then sort of weekly deals. And you and I have sold a lot of gift cards over the years. We both have bulk accounts with Raise meaning that we can sell gift cards on the raise marketplace with a cheaper commission than just the average everyday person going up there. It used to be that they had pretty heavy requirements for that. I don't know what the current state of it is. I think they did away with the, you used to have to sell many thousands of dollars a month to, to keep it. And with COVID, they changed it. And I don't know what the current state of it is now, but it's can be very lucrative. It can generate a lot of points. And in one way, this is kind of my favorite way to, to do it. I find like the profit margins are less overall than some of the other methods, but I can scale up a lot quicker, a lot faster, especially if my local grocery store has a good deal, something like that. Merchant gift card reselling is sort of near and dear to my heart. Generated millions and millions of points doing it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think you, you hit on, you know, there's kind of two different types of gift card deals out there. There's some where you, you know, literally have to go to the store and you're buying phys physical gift cards. Uh, you know, oftentimes they are around holidays, you know, sales and so forth. And some of those you can scale up pretty nicely, but there is, you know, a, a processing cost in terms of time spent, you know, to, to do those both going to the store and then, you know, processing the gift cards, taking the numbers off, getting them in an electronic format that you can sell online. And then there's, you know, more the, the low hanging fruit of, uh, you know, pajama points, you know, where you're just buying cards online, gift cards online. It tends to be not always, it tends to be a little bit more difficult to scale up, uh, as you mentioned, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, Miles to Memories or Doctor of Credit or other websites will post these deals. Uh, and, you know, oftentimes you have a limit of, you know, two or five, uh, you know, $100 gift cards that you can buy for a particular merchant. Uh, so it's a little bit more difficult to scale up on each of the deals. But again, you can do it from the you know privacy of your own bedroom with pajama points. Yeah, being tuned into these deals is a good way to kind of be able to pick and choose which ones you do. Uh, one that comes to mind was from a buyer's group that we saw a couple months ago that, and we'll talk about buyers groups in a minute, that was for a golf club, right? A very famous golf club. And, you know, a lot of wealthy people go there and I guess they want to save on on gift cards. So the, the gift card was like 15% off, in, I think, and you sold it at value, but it was like thousands of dollars in spend in like two minutes, right? Just buying a gift card online. There were limits, but it was a nice amount of spend to pick up quickly. Those are sort of the best examples of deals. But if you want to scale this at any level, like you say, you're probably going to end up with physical gift cards from stores. And the most important thing is, again, this is a business. Tracking is really important when it comes to gift cards, being able to track what you've sold, how you sold it, all of the numbers, even with physical gift cards typing in all the numbers, or, you know, if you get advanced, you can get like a, a magnetic reader or a way to kind of digitize them a little easier. But for me, that's the most monotonous part of this whole thing is dealing with all the gift card numbers and everything else. And it can get a little bit overwhelming, I think. Yeah. And there is risk involved, as you mentioned, you know, the, the margins, the profit margins uh, in this business are lower, you know, f just as an example, you're, you know, buying a merchant gift card for 15 you know, percent off. And you're, as you mentioned, in the case of that, uh, you know, golf course, uh, while it was a large dollar amount, you got a lot of spend right away. You were selling them at face value. You weren't making any profit. But, you know, overall, uh, even if you're you know, you, you kind of have one of two ways to sell. Either you sell them directly, as you mentioned, you know, having a raise reseller relationship with we, which we both have, which you know allows us to buy gift cards at not a huge discount. Our commission to sell them is smaller, but you know the profit margin is small. Or you're selling them to um, someone else who's selling them, um, or you know, buyers club, as you mentioned, and we'll you know talk a little bit more about that later in terms of other things beyond gift cards. Uh, but the margins are slim, and you do take on some of the risk. Uh, there is famously fraud in this you know gift card space, um, and so as a buyer, that comes back upon you. Generally speaking, you want to understand what that relationship is with you know however you're selling these cards. Uh, but, you know, in the years that we've done this, uh, you know, I, I can't speak for you, but it, personally, I've had very low rate of risk in terms of cards going bad or someone, you know, saying that this card didn't have the balance that I know it had on it because I paid for the card and, you know, Again, depending on how you're selling, you know, there's different ways that that's dealt with. Um, fortunately, you know, as long as you keep good records, you know, keep the proof of your purchasing them and so forth, I've had a, a pretty bad, pretty, pardon me, pretty low failure 
rate. Um, uh, but when you're dealing with extremely low profit margins, that risk is there that you can pretty quickly, you know, wipe away any profit that you're getting. So you need to be careful. And that's also where organization comes in because it's easy to lose a card and, you know, you got $500 on a card. It just disappears. I know you and I have both found cards, uh, you know, a year or two later that uh, we hadn't liquidated or for whatever reason. And our systems that we have do work, right? But we're not always on top of it. So you do find the cards eventually, but it's always a reminder uh, that you have to be on top of this stuff or money very easily could be lost. And there is fraud. And uh, so you do have to sometimes deal with not only fraudulent cards, uh, to your point, I don't think that's become a huge issue for me over the years, but it has happened occasionally. And, you know, one other thing to look at when you're selling cards to another person or a middleman or a buyer's group or something like that is that there has been so, so quote unquote fraud within that sort of space, people not paying, uh, people taking longer to pay. We had one famous case where somebody just basically upped and disappeared and filed bankruptcy and left a lot of people holding the bag on the cards that they had sold to him. So, you know, there are a lot of uh, pitfalls when it comes to that. And there'll be to go into it with open mind, right? This isn't, it can be nice to like meet people in the community. It can be nice to find these new ways to do it. And largely what's really nice about finding buyers clubs and all this is you can talk to other people who are doing it and get their advice. But in the end, you know, don't float more than you can afford, you know, to, to at the very best afford to wait weeks to get back or, you know, potentially lose. And a lot of people learn that lesson and it's something to be aware of, even though it's not something that's usually common. We have seen it in this space where somebody took a lot of thousands, tens of thousands of dollars of people's gift cards, sold them off, ended up filing bankruptcy and the people lost all their money, I believe. And I was very close to that. I had been selling just a little bit to this person and thankfully was able to, to get all my gift cards out. And it wasn't a ton, but I think in the bankruptcy filing, there were people that were in the five figures to him. And that's a lot of money to lose. So be careful with that stuff. But I feel like paying attention to the deals, getting in with some buyers groups, which we're going to talk about more in the merchandise reselling where they're sending you deals. So you don't even have to search for them yourself. And then finding ways to scale up within the deals. How can you get multiple limits? You know, if it's a limit of three, how can you do that across multiple buyers? Or do you have friends who can help you out? And we'll talk about those things in just a minute. One thing I just thought of that I want to add before we move on PDX is, you know, fuel points and other promotions, right? Fuel points can be really good for people to offset their costs. So look out for those. Some regional grocery chains have great ones. Some of the national ones have had great ones and, you know, varying success lately, especially people who tried to scale those up. Uh, but just purely for yourself, I know a lot of people who, take advantage of these deals to save a dollar or more on gas, depending on their lo local grocery store, or they give you back grocery rewards. And so if the value is there, a lot of times it can make sense to spend in that way as well. So kind of look out for that stuff and learn your local grocery chains, learn what their fuel points programs are and learn what some of the quirks are. Cause every grocery chain has some quirks, some cool deals that they run. A good example would be Myers 10% that they give, you know, a couple times a year up in, uh, the Midwest, something I'm, I'm hugely jealous of, but, you know, just kind of look out for that stuff. All right, let's move on to the third type of reselling. So we talked about ticket reselling, gift card reselling, and now there's merchandise reselling, which can mean anything from listing something on eBay, selling something locally on Facebook Marketplace or OfferUp. Mercari is another great example. 
and then Amazon, which is what a lot of people do, including us. We both have been running Amazon reselling businesses for quite a while. And I remember you were the one who gave me the push to really do it. Back in the day, I would write about these Staples iPad deals and other deals that would come up. And I was occasionally selling stuff and you know making money. And you, I feel like during that time, kind of got more serious about it. And we're selling more of a wide variety of things. And eventually we both decided to do it, you know, I guess more regularly, like it became a part of our lives instead of just picking off one-off deals. It became sort of part of what we did. And I ended up scaling up to, I'd say a bigger level than you, but largely we've bought a lot of the same things. We shared a lot of information helped each other out a lot along the way. And it's been quite a ride. I would say Amazon's most of what we do uh, although we've done pretty much all the marketplaces. So I guess we'll start with, is merchandise reselling more than anything else a time suck? What sort of advice would you have for people who are kind of eyeing, oh, maybe I can resell stuff for a profit? What should they know? Oh boy, there's a lot in there. I think the first thing is really being able to answer the questions of where are you finding deals that you can buy at an attractive price and sell for a profit? And then how are you going to sell them? I mean, maybe that sounds over, you know, really simple, but those are you know, at, at the heart of it. Uh, the, the two big questions you mentioned, you know, way back 10 plus years ago, you know, maybe finding some you know, cheap iPad deals, which interestingly, you know, still continues to, you know, to this day. But, uh, you know, I was always the type of person where I would, you know, find a great deal. And, uh, you know, what I think first crossed my head was, you know, similar to the you know, season ticket you know, reselling um, is, you know, if I'm going to buy one of these for myself, why not? If it's such a great deal, why not buy three and, you know, sell two of them and take the profit and it covers, you know, my you know, my personal expense for the item, you know, that then again, you know, scaled up and morphed over time into, um, you know, how do you, you scale up this and really make it into a business? And it is, I think, as you know, we've highlighted and, and might more, you know, it is absolutely a business that you need to be, you know, thinking of as a business, accounting for as a business, the tax associ- you know, issues associated with running a business and so forth. Uh, but then, the, you know, the other side, once you've identified, you know, and maybe we'll talk more about how, how we do identify those things. But once you've identified something that you think you can sell for a profit, then how are you going to sell it? And, you know, as you pointed out, there's, you know, all sorts of different ways from, you know, eBay to local, you know, offer up Facebook marketplace and so forth uh, to, you know, again, what we've done a lot of, which is selling on Amazon. Um, we'll say that, you know, when you move into that realm of selling on Amazon, uh, it is really becomes a business as opposed to maybe selling onesie twosies on Craigslist or you know offer up locally or eBay. You know you can you know do that potentially without it becoming a full blown business for you. Um, Amazon has gotten to the point where they have requirements on you know sellers. Really, it goes to the, their fee structures uh, are such that you've really got to be committed to doing it uh, to make it worthwhile. And you know their fees have increased and continue to increase over time to make it. Uh, more and more challenging. Um, but yeah, those are just you know some of the broad thoughts I'd have. Yeah, I think the big question for a lot of people is what to sell. And I think you made a good distinction. There is that low-hanging fruit stuff that can come up and some of that feeds into buyers groups as well. Maybe things that are low margin like an iPad, but relatively safe, high volume, uh, things like that. And you used to be able to sell iPads on Amazon, for example. So we would get the iPads and then we would sell them ourselves which you can't do anymore. And that's something I'll talk about in a minute about Amazon because Amazon isn't uh, as good as many of the gurus out there say. Uh, There's a lot of people on YouTube, on TikTok, everywhere, how you can make all this money on an Amazon business. 
but uh, it's it's a pretty difficult hill to climb. To start, I want to say, how do people find merchandise? And all I can tell you people without giving them any sort of huge secrets is that you got to do trial and error, right? I remember in the early days, I went out to big lots. And this seems to be some advice that people get when they're getting new to this. And I don't know that it's really good advice, but maybe it's good learning. Is you go to big lots, you start scanning stuff. There are apps that you can use uh, that will help you uh, kind of determine what your net cost will be on something. Because if you sell something on Amazon for $20, of course, Amazon's going to charge a 15% referral fee in most cases, and then they'll charge other various fees. So it's good to have an idea of what your net is. But you know, you'll often find things in big lots, you'll scan them, and you'll see that they're selling on Amazon for a little bit more. And in the early days, I found a bunch of stuff, um, and not just at big lots at other places. And what I quickly learned was that there was a lot of people out there going to Big Lots scanning stuff. And Big Lots has what they say, Big Lots, right? They get these oversized lots of things and then they put them in all of their stores. So all their stores tend to have the same things. They tend to be like discontinued merchandise, stuff like that. So I would find something, let's say I'd find a $10 item at Big Lots that was selling for $40 on Amazon. Then I had to figure out, Okay, well, here's the rank, and it's some rank. It's ninety thousand in household, or you. Every category is different. Every rank is different. So, how do you know how much that's actually going to sell? How many units are moving? And that's not something that's really easy to figure out. There are places you can Google to see, okay, how many items are in each category, and kind of work on it. But the hard thing is just doing things over and over and learning. And in those cases, I'd go to Big Lots, buy something. Let's say I bought something for ten dollars that was selling for forty. By the time I would get that into Amazon, it would be selling for 30 or 25 because everybody else went and bought it at Big Lots too. So it's not always as kind of cut and dry as you would think, but I did a lot of in-store Walmart clearances, toy clearances at Target, uh, Toys R Us back in the day. I've shopped in-store at Best Buy and Costco and taking advantage of some of their stuff. A lot of these stores do allow tax exempt like Walmart, like Amazon, uh, like Costco even. So you can get tax exempt if you want to scale this up into a business. I highly recommend doing that or just move to a state like Oregon, like you, where there's no sales tax. And then you don't have to worry about uh, paying sales tax. And that can be a huge issue when it comes to some of this stuff in your margins and stuff like that. But yeah, so I don't know that there's any like secret sauce other than being diligent and just trying stuff out, sticking with stuff that you know. And then the other thing about Amazon compared to when we started is a lot of the brands are what they call gated or blocked. So if you're starting a new account these days, you can't always sell something like Lego or Disney or some of the stuff that you might come across. And that sort of limits you. And the only way around that, I think, is selling for a longer period of time, upping your volumes. And then sometimes Amazon will approve you for stuff. Being in Facebook groups, that's all stuff that helped me over the years. And after all this 10 year journey, I'm down to like just selling toys, mostly, you know, just specific types of toys. So from all the craziness that I've sold over the years, I've narrowed it down, which helps with my time suck, I'd say, but also it's out of necessity because to your point, the fees are higher, the time required is higher, the the profits are lower, dare I say, because everything's getting eaten up. 
So I, I don't know. Have I talked everybody out of doing this yet? <laughs> <laughs> I think you might have. Uh, yeah, hearing you talk about Big Lots, the and I think you mentioned Costco. That you know that that's the store that jumps to mind for me. I'm always you know amazed. You go there, you see all these you know things that appear to be a great deal, and you know I think anyone who is interested in doing this says, oh well, that's such a great deal. I must be able to resell it online. I've been amazed to find that uh, you know most things that are sold at Costco um, are being resold via Amazon. Amazon or eBay, shockingly at probably a small loss um, for, for the sellers, which tells me that those sellers, pardon me, those buyers uh, you know, who, who are turning around and selling them are, are, are you know, really purely just doing it for generating extremely small profit in the form of either credit card rewards um, or, you know, maybe rewards that, you know, for example, Costco has their executive membership where they, you know, pay you an extra 2%. And so you're talking about just extremely small numbers. And I, I, I'm just not interested in, in doing something with, you know, such low profit potential. Um, I think the other things in terms of looking for stuff, and, and that's, I think, what drives people to Costco and says, well, gee, I can resell this thing that's there year round. Well, wouldn't it be great if it were that easy? But we are all are, as resellers, looking for something um, that's, you know, people will call them, you know, replenishable item, an item that you can just continue to buy and continue to sell. You know, some people go to the extreme of, you know, developing their own product. Then it really is a business and having, you know, a product manufactured for you, you know, overseas and so forth, you know, that would be, you know, the extreme case. But, you know, the more simple of just going to the store and buying stuff. I think that the main thing that people will run into um, is the best deals are usually quantity limited. And, you know, the, the simplest example I can give you is, uh, you know, Amazon maybe runs some you know special deal around Black Friday or whatever, and it's a great deal, but you can only buy one or two of them. Well, that, that you know, that's fine, you know, especially if you're going to turn around and sell them on, you know, eBay or locally, you know, buy a gaming console and turn around and, you know, sell it locally for, you know, $100, $200, you know, profit. You know, those are all great things. But in terms of trying to turn it into a consistent business, um, you know, we're all looking for things. You mentioned toys that you know well, that you can scale up and get to know. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's ultimately the goal if you actually want to turn this into a business as opposed to just something where you can generate some spend and a little bit of profit um, every once in a while. And I think that maybe is a good segue into talking about buyers clubs because that's, you know, effectively what, what you know, people in our position are doing with these buyers clubs or groups. Yeah, and buyers clubs are essentially set up to get around those quantity limits, right? If you're buying for a buyer's group, you're a buyer for them and they are being able to scale up their buying. If they have 100 people who can buy three of something, now all of a sudden they can get real volume. And on the reselling side, I think that's the biggest sort of journey I took was being more comfortable going deeper on certain things instead of getting five or 10 of something, you know, getting it up to 20 to 50, getting it up to hundreds. Um, and that's been some of my best wins, obviously, is when I was comfortable enough to buy 300 of something where I could look plenty of times in the past where I made a decent profit on something, but I only bought five or 10 of them or I didn't buy enough. And, you know, that's something that is good if you can scale up. But also, if you're not interested in doing all of this stuff, buyers groups can be great because you can get some of the spend and then turn it over to somebody else to figure out the profit. And I view buyers groups maybe different than some people out there. I still buy selling merchandise to a buyers group as reselling. So when I buy something, even if it's going to a buyers group, I'm just reselling it to them, oftentimes at a much lower profit margin than I would if I was selling it myself, but I'm not dealing with all of the, the issues with that. And so it's still, for me, a business when you're doing buyers groups. You're still buying merchandise, you're selling merchandise, got to account for what your profit or loss is, all of that stuff. 
Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, along with running a business, and I I think there is just a threshold where any individual person is going to say, okay, this is now crossed over from being just something that I'm doing as a hobby. And, you know, we're not tax accountants and giving any sort of tax advice here. But at some point, you hit a quantity threshold where you're doing enough that, you know, if you're especially if you're making a profit on it, um, and some people are happy to do you know buyers clubs deals that we'll talk about that are you know just at break even. But if you're doing this enough, there's benefit to to running it as a business, um, you know. But there's also the burden that goes along with you know all the accounting and you know taxes and so forth. Uh, but I view those as good things. It's it's protection for yourself. You know, having good record keeping to make sure that you're you know not accidentally buying 20 iPads and only 19 show up, and you don't have a you know system for keeping track of that. Furthermore, you know, since this is a miles and points show, you know, another thing that I'll mention is that you know setting up a reselling business or you know whatever you might be doing you know, as an official business. Again, not tax advice here, but you know whether it's as an LLC or as a corporation. Um, having that business, you know, makes applying for business credit cards a, a little bit easier as well. I mean, certainly you can apply for business credit cards as a sole proprietorship, uh, but you know, having uh, the, that official business set up can actually unlock some other things for us in this game as well. Absolutely. And it's legitimate spend, right? I mean, it's a good spend. You're buying merchandise, you're shopping at regular retailers or elsewhere. So it could be, you know, generally it's going to be the big retailers, Walmart, Target, Costco, Best Buy, Amazon. That's typically where these buyers groups want you to buy from, which brings me to some of the pitfalls. So first you talked about tracking, right? You need to be able to track what you bought, how much you bought it for, who you're sending it to, you know, you, so you need to receive everything. You need to send it to them. That's if it's getting sent to you. Um, so you can kind of get all of that in. And we both kind of prefer that method. I try to do that when I have tax exempt so I can have ships stuff sent to me and then some of the buyers groups allow you to get labels and then send to them. That way I can verify everything and send it to them. But many other buyers groups, they have tax-free addresses, so addresses in tax-free states that you can ship to. And that brings you to the first big pitfall of buyers groups is that these addresses get known pretty quickly and having them on your account could cause a shutdown. This is particularly the case with stores like Best Buy and Target, less so with Walmart and Amazon, although it can happen. And so you are risking your personal accounts, your address. Uh, if you have never been banned by a store, it's not fun. Um, so to be banned where you can't order, you know, yeah, you did a lot of spend for the buyer's group, but now you want to order toothpaste from Walmart and they cancel your order. You can't do that. So that can be a downside to it. And it happens quite often. Lucky you're in a state where there's no sales tax, so it's much easier to ship to yourself. I tend to do it with deals from places I get tax exempt so I can ship to myself. But there's also tracking if you're shipping to them, looking at the tracking numbers, looking at when it's delivered, making sure it gets checked in correctly. I've had it where they check in my order incorrectly, the wrong number of things. What sort of kind of advice do you film, like take pictures of what you send to them? Um, are you tracking serial numbers when you're getting the items yourself? What in totality are you tracking to make sure you don't make mistakes? Well, at the simplest level, the most important thing is just simply keeping very good track of, you know, what are you purchasing? Did it arrive to you? You know, have you processed it? Have you sent it out? Uh, you know, getting down to the granularity of tracking serial numbers and so forth. I mean, I'll, I guess I'll just say simply, if, if it's a big enough dollar amount, I'm going to do that. If it's a negligible or, you know, relatively small dollar amount, I might make, make the you know decision to, you know, not track every little, you know, detail like a serial number and so forth. Uh, but, you know, even things as simple as, uh, you know, having a ring or 
Arlo, you know, camera at your front door. If you're starting to have a number of packages arriving, I've run into since situations where a major retailer will, you know, send me an email saying this was delivered at a certain time. Fortunately, I haven't had the porch pirate, uh, you know, situation where stuff I've seen that stuff get sold. Knock on wood. Fortunately, that hasn't happened. Um, but I have had situations where, you know, something is said that it was been delivered and it wasn't delivered and I can verify that with my cameras uh, and maybe it get, got delivered to a neighbor. And so, you know, I need to track that down and so forth. But all of that goes to, you know, having a sufficient level of detail to make sure that you're able to, uh, you know, you're able to track things. So you don't have losses because as we've talked a fair amount about here, you know, a lot of these things are, are relatively low margin with the extreme example being, you know, buying things at cost for buyers clubs, turning around and selling an iPad for the exact same price that you bought it for effectively just to generate spend. Now I'll record that as a transaction. That's still a business for me. It just happens to be, you know, at a zero profit or a penny profit and that's fine. But keeping tr those extremely good records is important because if you, you know, lose one iPad out of 20, uh, that, that, that's a significant cost. Yeah. And I think we beat that, uh, we beat that into the ground with the risk, the time suck. And hopefully we didn't talk people out of doing this stuff. Cause I think the big takeaway I would give to most people is, you know, find what works for you within this stuff, but be open to deals that might come. So if you're not interested in really going full scale with ticket gift card or merchandise reselling, being open to some of the deals, some of the buyers groups. I don't do as much buyers group uh, buying as you do, mainly because I'm limited with my tax exempt. I don't want to mix addresses on any of my accounts. So I only want stuff sent to my house because I do also have an other reselling business. I don't want to taint that by buying for buyers groups. So I limit my stuff to, you know, tax exempt stuff I can have shipped to my house and then I can send to them. You know, I feel like the way people can really tune into this is just to be open to deals that make sense to them. And when a deal comes, there are, you know, back in the day, all kinds of gift card deals that would come. And I'm just like, ah, oh, that doesn't make sense. I could probably squeeze out something here, but I'm not going to do it. And then other ones that just talk to me instantly. It's the same thing with merchandise. I'll see a toy and I'll know that that toy is, you know, there it just makes sense because I know it and then I'll, I'll sell it. So I think that's the best way to sort of break into this stuff. And for buyers groups, I think, talking with other people in the hobby, find out who they're buying and selling to, who they have experience with is always a good thing. That's a good way to sort of get started to figure out, you know, who has the best deals, who's paying quicker, uh, who, you know, will work with you more for shipping labels, stuff like that. And then going back to the example we gave with gift card reselling, it's still a risk. This is another company that you're giving your merchandise to. How long are you floating that money to them? What happens if they go bankrupt? you know, or their cash flow comes into an issue. We've seen that with buyers groups where their funds get frozen. That happened to a buyer's group, I think, in the last year. And they still paid everybody, but it took time. So, you know, be aware of the pitfalls, be aware of the time, and then figure out how this works within your schedule. I think most people will be able to get some big wins with some nice profits and earn points. And then eventually maybe they scale up to something else. But that's sort of how I would approach it if I was new and interested in this. Yeah, the last thing I'd add is, again, I, I, I'm glad you brought us back around to it. I mean, while it's easy to point to the risks and therefore the importance of record keeping and so forth, I mean, this has been phenomenal for both of us and we know a lot of other people in the community in terms of generating lots of miles and points. The, the last thing that I would add is the opportunity to either be a friend or bring friends into this. And so the example I'll use is if you're buying for a buyer's club and you find these great deals, especially if it happens, this happens to be one of the deals where they actually pay you a nice little 
profit or they refer to it as commission, uh, you know, a little spiffer over whatever you pay for it. You know, if you're buying three of them and you happen to have family or friends that are, you know, close by and know what you're up to and trust you and, and so forth, that, you know, they might love to get in on, the, you know, the action, get a little credit card spend for themselves. And, um, you know, they might be happy to, you know, have it be it break even just to generate some credit card spend. So, you know, you can look for friends that are willing to do that, or you can look to be a friend. If you know someone um, like us that's involved in reselling, whether it's to buyers clubs or to Amazon or so forth, you know, let that friend know that you're interested in, you know, buying stuff for them. And again, maybe you're not making a big profit, but maybe the risk is taken away for you. They're willing, it's someone that you trust that you know very well. And there's a distinction in there, you know, someone that you've you know heard of that's reputable versus, you know, literally your best friend or a family member. Um, you know, if, if you have the opportunity to buy for someone else, that can also be a great way to get some extra spend. So hopefully that gave you a good idea of what all of this is about, about how PDX and I have spent way too much of our lives over the last 10 years, you know, earning miles and points, but having fun and also earning profit. I've reinvested every dollar from my merchandise reselling business back into it, growing the inventory. And eventually I hope that that will be a nice piece of my retirement, hopefully. So you know, there is a side of benefit to that. Of course, I always have boxes in my house and I have a full warehouse and, you know, it's a full business. So there's a lot that goes into that. In fact, I sent uh, I sent you a picture the other day of my, my living room, which got bombarded with boxes no, over no the boxes. holidays. Finally clear. And, you know, it's a quality of life thing. That living room is not getting another box in it because it just totally affects my quality of life, having that stuff around the house and... That's another thing to, to keep in mind. Another sad way to end this, but I'm happy that it's it's free again for good, hopefully, this time. I have to ask Jasmine how she feels about boxes the next time she's on. Yeah, Jasmine runs the warehouse, so she's uh, she uh, eats, sleeps, and dreams. Uh, yeah, boxes everywhere. Uh, but yeah, it's it's good to, to get that done. And I hope that people take away from this that there are opportunities, that you can do what works for you, that this is something perhaps to look at to earn more miles and points, if you have the bandwidth and the time, any final takeaways, any final points you want to make? Yeah, just mentioning, you know, Jasmine makes me think of, you know, just kind of the, the player two, you know, thing that we oftentimes talk about this in the hobby for, you know, credit card applications and so forth. But I think it applies to this reselling stuff as well. I know for me personally, something, you know, that I didn't mention is that this is not my full-time job, not even close. Uh, and of course, you do have to, you know, ask yourself the question of how much time are you willing to put to this and so forth. But for me, uh, having my wife, uh, you know, work from home and have this effectively be her part-time job from home um, allows us to scale up to a level that I would never be able to do on my own. Um, so, you know, whether that's a spouse or a friend, you know, doing this with, you mentioned earlier, you and I kind of working together to, you know, help find deals for each other that, you know, that's another way that, you know, bringing in another person can kind of help uh, make it more meaningful. And, you know, I think again, buyers clubs that we've hit on is the you know, kind of ultimate example of that. Someone else is finding the deals for you and you're just buying them. Uh, but there's all different sorts of ways to, you know, try and make this work for you to generate more money and points without making it, you know, while it might become a business, as we've discussed, it doesn't need to be a full-time business. Three cheers to the awesome spouses who help out uh, with this sort of stuff. I tell you, both yours and mine, awesome ladies and awesome partners in these businesses, because that's truly what they are. They're partnering with us as much as we sort of drive the buying and kind of get all nerdy into this stuff. I know uh, in both of our cases, our wives are the ones who are the the backbone of those businesses and they deserve a lot of credit for what they do. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. PDX, where can people find you when they're not listening to the MTM podcast? 
Probably the easiest way would be on Twitter at PDX Deals Guy, uh, and then occasionally once, twice a year when I write a post for uh, Miles to Memories. Absolutely, and uh, also in the MTM Diamond Lounge for anybody there. So he loves to chat it up in our Slack and everything else. You can find me at Miles to Memories all over social media. All of our posts, podcasts, and videos are at milestomemories.com. And you can check out our YouTube, our Vegas YouTube that I still do with Mark, youtube.com forward slash miles to memories for your, all your latest Vegas news and information. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.